0: Welcome to part two of this special two-part episode of Into the Impossible on Geometric Unity. Sit back, or rather lean forward, and listen to Professor Brian Keating and Eric Weinstein continue this in-depth discussion about Eric's theory of geometric unity. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Essentially,
1: spinners can be defined without choosing a metric. That is new. I don't think that any critic, any anonymous, pseudonymous, or uh, anonymous uh, person can really criticize that. I mean, that's just a fact. So what, why, why wouldn't physicists, if, if it's not true, it would be you know almost surprising. But if it is true, um, why, why haven't physicists noticed this before? And why aren't they making a bigger deal out, out of it? Partially, it might be your fault because you haven't published this.
2: Blame the victim. Um,
1: <laughs> Who else? You know,
2: what I usually hear about this is people say, oh, you don't understand uh, Jean-Pierre Bourguignon um, Fleming- told us how to move uh, spinners under variation of the metric. But he's varying the metric continuously. There's always a metric present. Mm-hmm. What if there's no metric for a little while? <laughs> All right.
1: Which know, could be or the or universe before
2: before God intervened. Are you going to do a Feynman integral over all variations of the metric? I mean, I don't know what kind of pain you're, you're signing up for, but I'd certainly rather free. It. Look, here, here's the basic statement. If we're serious about quantum gravity, we should be very serious about trying to get fermions that don't require their bundles to be dependent on the existence of a metric at all times. mm mm-hmm. And I'm sure that either there's a brilliant explanation that I don't understand, and I, I'm eager to hear it, or it's a key sign that the community really dropped the ball. Remember, for example, that the bohm Aronoff effect, I'm sure that when, when Aronoff and Bohm said, hey, shouldn't there be an effect of this uh, zero field strength? Uh, they probably thought, have I lost my mind? I'm sure that Yang and Lee... Uh, When they proposed that maybe the weak force was left-right asymmetric, probably thought, are we going to be laughed at? Do we just not understand what everybody else understood? Physics gets things really spectacularly wrong occasionally. And I'm curious to know if this is one of those moments.
1: Yeah, I mean, you might also say, oh, there's 26 dimensions in heterotic string theory. Uh, That can't be right. No, it's only 10, or 11, or five-brained, m brain theory. Um, I want to ask another question, which is uh, frequently used in criticisms, both anonymous and anonymous, uh, which is that this doesn't... I actually
2: say something. I really don't want to talk about anonymous trolls with PhDs criticizing the theory. And I also don't want to talk about non-constructive hit jobs uh, on new theories. Last time I checked, physics was in a crisis that some people were admitting to and other people were sweeping under the rug. Okay, well. If you have a crisis, wait, wait, wait. If you have a crisis, for God's sakes, open it up. We don't need one more talk uh, from the same crowd of people who've been keynoting every conference of, of note for the last 30 years. Who haven't got the new ideas. Let's at least hear crazier, weirder, wilder people. And if you guys don't have the guts and courage to do it from inside the community, hear it from a podcast host.
1: Okay, well, this is my podcast. And I do want to respond to these criticisms. Because, for me, uh, I don't find them legitimate. And you can choose to be silent as is your want. No, it's it's rare to... to, No, I wish
2: to punish punish dysfunctional cowards who... um, attempt to snipe pretending to be helpful. Uh, you can do better
1: Okay, I, I can do better uh, as well. But I do wanna say uh, that uh, this is maybe a, a general con- comment, not for uh, pseudonymous, anonymous people, uh, bananimous, uh, but but uh, this is a general con- uh, complaint that I've heard. Uh, it has to reproduce quantum theory. And I think, forget about that with regard to G- GU, it could be said about other theories, loop quantum gravity, etc. First of all, I think GU does produce uh, what we would say is a relativistic quantum field theory in the Dirac equation, which is manifestly resplendent and produced and predicted. So I'm not gonna, I don't wanna hear from you just yet, Eric. I, I do wanna get your response. But this notion that a theory of everything has to subsume anything. I said this uh, to our mutual friend, Stefan Alexander, uh, professor at Brown University and esteemed cosmologist uh, and close friend to both Eric and myself. Uh, I said, look, I don't think it's valid to say that any theory of everything, string theory or whatever, has to predict every manifestation of physics. And this is where I take issue and I I make truck with uh, Professor Kaku, who says things like the one inch long God equation will predict everything. I don't think that's possible, eh? think it's useful to think about the goal of physics is to predict every phenomenon in physics.
2: Because it's an incautious statement. Really what you're trying to say is that there's stuff that you should be able to read off from the basic setup of the theory directly and there's stuff that you should work your ass off in order to get from the theory. Now, you know, we don't see quarks running around free the way you might imagine naively you, you would if you were looking at the hydronic part of the uh, standard model Lagrangian. So you have to work pretty hard, I would imagine, in order to find these bound states that we call protons and neutrons and try to understand infrared slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's part of the hazard of saying I can predict everything. No, even computationally, you don't think so. Really, it's just a question of, we should be able to recover everything that we've already done and actually, I think that that's pretty fair. Hmm. So even there's a dumb way of doing. I, I think there's a dumb way of doing it where you try to say, um, "Show me this," and then you don't have anything. And, and I have to say, I, I encounter a tremendous amount of that from people who are old enough to drink, and I, it, it gives me pause as to who's raising the young. Um, that's not the issue. The issue is, they're right. They should be saying, "Look." here's what we know how to do, and you should be looking to recover what we already know how to do from what you're saying. And I I think that's actually fair. Um, There's a question of should you be able to do everything on day one? Should you be able to do it when you've been cut off for 27 years working completely on your own uh, under totally weird circumstances where every month you feel you get farther and farther away from the literature and your brain hasn't spoken this language in a million years. Those are questions that I feel like it's really sad because they don't people don't understand what the cost of isolation is. I do think, however, that um, working in a context with competent people who aren't constantly trying to rename everything after themselves, uh, there's no question that that's a reasonable and fair thing. If we had a collegial world uh based on a desire to advance our understanding and i'm happy if i if i fail at that with with a collection of uh, constructive colleagues to say that that's a black mark against the theory that's fine
1: now when I look at the corresponding um, uh, shall we say imprecations against string theory I would say things like uh, the swampland the multiverse problem these may be you know uh, issues that cause stillbirth in in many people's minds uh, I've talked to you about Paul Steinhardt the Einstein professor of natural Science at Princeton he regards the string theory as essentially bad for society, not just for physics, not just for science, but bad for society because of the extravagance in a truest sense of the word, in a bad sense of the word, of the of the multiverse and string landscape. Now, I know you're shaking your head. You know, let, me, let me be very clear about it.
2: We're, we're, we're wimping out from what needs to be said, and it's really important that the community, I think, gets it right. I don't think string theory is a problem. String theory can't harm anyone. String theory doesn't it's the string theorists, when they're in their triumphalist mode, which are, in insu- that's it's an insufferable state of being. But even then, you know, um, I'm sure Feynman was insufferable, and I think Murray Gelman was insufferable, and Pauli was pretty insufferable. We've had insufferable members of our community for a very long time, and we should not be getting rid of insufferable people. Mm-hmm. The problem is what happens when people become insufferable and they don't constantly check in with the unforgiving nature of the universe. I mean, Pauli predicted
1: the neutrino uh, in an insufferable fashion. (laughs) He he apologized profusely. I've done something which should never be done. (laughs) Now, I ask you, though, uh, should should string theory, let's just be neutral to GU for a second. Should string theory, from string theory, emerge the Aharonov-Bohm effect? I mean, a true theory of everything, it would, right? Uh, look, and if
2: it took a while to recover certain features of the world that you had an effective theory, I mean, look, let's put it this way. Um, if you look at uh, Marshallian demand in economic theory, should you be able to predict that from uh, the Lagrangian of the universe? No, it's in a different strata of the world. You should be able to predict things that are within you know the adjacent strata of the theory. and then you should you, but you might have to appeal to some higher effective theory. I, look, I, I want to defend both the string theorists and string theory. These are incredibly smart people who found some real structure. And who never knew when to quit when it came to trumpeting just how much better string theory is than everything else. Even there, they had a point. They were smarter and deeper in general than everyone else. And they just weren't as good as they claimed to be, and they weren't as successful as they claimed to be. And what they did succeed at, they didn't want to take credit for, because it was really mathematics done in physics departments rather than physics. And so we have a problem that sociologically nobody wants to say that the Institute for Advanced Study has, like, the smartest guys around. And a lot of what they do is in physics. Mm-hmm. In standard terms, it's the mathematics of physics. Yeah. And that these are uncomfortable truths, just the same way that we're, it's uncomfortable that we're taking seriously somebody who's been out of the field for 27 years. But these are these are end times. We're having end time conversations, <laughs> and I think that it's it's. You know, we don't need to be mean about it. I think no, we just
1: need you. to be more honest. Okay. Uh, with that, I give some applause here. Let's see if we can hear that. let see. Uh, got some applause, Eric. Um, a smattering. That just was a smattering. I want to take a pause uh, for the cause uh, and to uh, have, in, have a, uh, a pause to recognize our guest today as the esteemed Dr. Eric Weinstein, who is a seeker after truth, a seeker after my own heart, in the authentic tradition of the old one Uh his namesake Albert. Now they say this is not a serious podcast until you break out the puppets. Now I know Rogan has a supply of bows and M16s and all sorts of other things. Uh, I don't have any of those accoutrements. I, I I only have my sock puppets and my gelt uh, Nobel Prize. But I do want to say that this is a special conversation with Eric because it really fulfills a promise that was made. Uh, you know, basically a year ago, and then again again about six months ago on this podcast, which is to release a, uh, a stunning amount of new technical details, and you really surpassed that. Our mutual friend, James Altucher, a podcaster extraordinaire, he says that you should never under-promise and over-deliver, you should never under-promise and under-deliver, you should over-promise and over-deliver, meaning that uh, if you say you're going to get it done in three months and get uh, a million uh, customers, you should get it done in one month and get 10 million customers. Or as uh, one Peter Thiel said once, uh, what do you think will require 10 years but could be done in six months? So what you've done is released a tremendous amount of, of technical information that will be fully released at some point to the public. but also also, I want to take our uh, audience through some of these delightful animations. I put, the, uh, I put the link in the chat.
2: There are some names associated with these videos. Brooke Dallas has been shepherding the project. Uh, Brendan Stone uh, has been incredibly helpful technically. Boku, a mysterious uh, German man who animates many of these things. There's a list uh, of people who've contributed. Tim, the mirthless swagman from Australia, a math student down there. Um, so what, what they've done is they've tried to interpret what it is that I'm saying because I tend, because of learning issues, to not think symbolically. That mm-hmm. ship that you're seeing is called curvature. And it has three masts because it has three irreducible components usually. One mast is called vile curvature. One mast is called traceless Ricci curvature. And one mast is called Ricci scalar. And the first greatest insight maybe of the 20th century was the way in which we could feedback the curvature of the levi-Civita connection into being a covector field on the space of all metrics and it, we, this is depicted as a boat going into a bottle that has a rather wide opening so let's run the run the animation okay So we've got a metric. The metric has a connection. The connection produces curvature that is Riemannian. We find that by identities it's got three components. It tries to go towards metrics, and the vial curvature is snapped off. Afterwards, the scalar curvature is lowered somewhat or adjusted by scalar curvature over 2 times g mu nu. And so... Symbolically, what we've done is we've said, Einstein threw away the vial curvature, readjusted the Ricci scalar curvature, and fed metric information through to the Levy-Javita connection, through to the Riemann curvature tensor, and then played these projection games to feed it back to the space of metrics. And that particular combination is perpendicular to the action of the diffeomorphism group on the space of all metrics. leading to a divergence-free condition via our friend the Bianchi identity. Now why can't we do that and feed this information back to the space of connections rather than the space of metrics because we would love to link um, space-time games with uh, gauge potential games. So let's see whether general relativity and gauge theory have an incompatibility problem as we try to play the same game. We start off with the Riemann curvature tensor, but now the neck is narrower. And what's really going on is, is that this is kind of evocative of trying to feed it into the space of connections, but the gauge group acts differently on two different factors. Namely, if connections are ad-valued 1 forms and curvature is a an ad or Lie algebra-valued 2 form, The problem here is that gauge transformations act on the Lie algebra component and don't touch the form component. But Einsteinian projection or or contraction or or summing over g mu nu indices is democratic. It deals simultaneously with the form piece and the Lie algebra piece. So if you treat only the Lie algebra piece under a gauge transformation and you don't touch the form piece, then contraction followed by gauge transformation will never be the same thing as gauge transformation followed by contraction. And so that's the puzzle, which is if geometric unity is really about the idea of trying to say maybe it's not so much quantizing gravity, maybe it's a fight between the different geometry of Riemann and Erismann, because gauge transformations are Arismanian geometry, but contractions are Riemannian geometry. So here's a GU approach. How do you get geometric uh, harmony between general relativity and gauge theory when you have the ship in a bottle problem? And this is kind of almost a tight analogy. You've got the curvature tensor. You apply a gauge transformation to two of the masts, and you pass them through into add valued D minus one forms, and then you do an inverse gauge transformation, which is exactly how you do the ship in the bottle trick. By the way, Brian gave me a wonderful ship in the bottle. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Raising the masts inside, and then you can potentially, if need be, uh, adjust one of the two masts again in order to get agreement. So, in part, it, the, the idea is how do you get harmony? What you need to do is to promote one of the. Um, so you need to promote the gauge transformations initially to field content, in order to make sure that you're carrying around enough information effectively, to uh, ensure that contraction is compatible with uh, gauge transformations.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, now that is a very tight idea of how these operators function inside of the theory. Um, Well, this is just, for some reason, whenever we talk about gauge theories, we don't give people very concrete examples. Many of you who are not professionals will not know what a gauge theory is. Let's imagine that we have a salary that is constant in dollar terms over time, but somebody is facing uh, inflationary pressures on their basket of goods. What we now have is a $10-an-hour salary, and if we claim that it's constant, constant means derivative equals zero, yes? Mm -hmm. But we know that it's not constant purchasing power. So we have two notions of constancy. How are they related? We do a gauge transformation. You now see that these little hash lines are the reference levels that we call a connection, and we decide that rise over run should not be measured from a naive horizontal, but should be measured instead from a custom reference level represented by the hash marks. Now if you let it go a little bit and then stop it, stop. Now you see that derivative equals zero if we measure rise over run above the hash marks is a salary that keeps pace with inflation and the current $10 an hour is actually a negative derivative because the rise over run is measured beneath those hash lines. That situation is actually an application of gauge theory to a very simple problem in economics completely depicted by stretching the fibers in the xy plane. And if you look online right now and say, what's the gauge theory, you'll be bamboozled by a bunch of stuff that nobody can understand unless they're actually insiders. So I think it's very interesting that again, just as it was elementary to ask the question, what what happens to the fermion medium while we're blinking out the supposedly quantum metric? Why is it that we don't actually explain to anyone what a gauge transformation and visualize it? And I'm very proud of our team taking this very simple example and showing what a gauge field is it's those little hash lines effectively those things in higher dimensions would be the electromagnetic potential which becomes the photon under quantization and if you're thinking about QED effectively the uh, the electron is a function and the photon is a derivative. Because what you're specifying is the levels above which uh, you're going to measure rise over run.
1: I just want to take a second here. Uh, this is Brian Keating now speaking. Uh, so if you look up uh, Juan Maldesena, you will find only one podcast that he's ever been on. Uh, and that is uh, the Into the Impossible podcast. If you look up uh, gauge theory and uh, an intuitive way to understand gauge theory, something like that, uh, you'll come up with this really brilliant economic analogy uh, that sounds like, you know, Eric is copied from from Juan Maldesena. And in fact, this came up recently where people talking about inflation stabilized items and bitcoin and and so forth. And then, um, it was very frustrating to me, and I imagine much more so for Eric, although he doesn't have to comment. He's too much of a gentleman. Uh, this is Eric's work uh, this gauge, uh, uh, gauge theory applied to economic uh, transactions. Eric for, and Pierre and Milani. And P. Yeah, Pia Milani, uh, of course, uh, the beautiful, talented uh, wife of Eric Weinstein. Eric is known as the husband of Pia Milani, mostly. And uh, and this work was really, uh, is, is brilliant and is deserving of uh, attention in its own right, independent of the brilliance of it as an analogy to explain a very complicated uh, subject such as gauge theory, or a very simple subject like calculus, as Eric is now uh, exp- uh, explaining to us. I wanted to say that you don't have to respond if you don't want to, Eric. I find it very frustrating when I see, "Oh, Eric, you got to learn what Mal Desain has said about." I'm like, "F you." Uh, that's yeah. that's very frustrating to me.
2: That, that's what that was. What was hurtful because Juan knew that it, he he had gotten this. Um, he knew about Pia Milani. He needed to reference her. He did reference her, but in a very slight, like minimal way. It's to a footnote. The two versions. It's a footnote. He knows better than the that. The problem that I'm having, the problem what I'm having with it is, is that the professional community does not understand that it has impulses that it hasn't faced, which is that it tends to brutalize those that it doesn't need to cite, that it, it doesn't see, just doesn't see people, and so to have. Look, I'm am a huge Juan Mal fan. As are we all. Me too. But I'm not going to sit around and I'm and have people say you what you really need to do is to listen to Juan Mal uh, whose brilliance knows no bounds. Uh, he did something really profound about uh, markets, engaged theory, um, because quite frankly. Uh, Pia Milani deserved to have an entire career built around it. I think it could easily be the most deep insight in mathematical economics of the last 25 to 50 years. And please show me another, given that the marginal revolution originally was the penetration of differential calculus into economics. Her, uh, her thesis, which is largely joint work, but was not allo- even allowed to, to, to be what it was supposed to be. Um, rebase the field of economics on gauge theory as the correct form of calculus and uh, what what I'll tell you what, what I don't really want to bitch about juan Maldacena. what I would really love to do is to have juan maldicena who showed so much excitement when you know when I confronted him about this he says oh you know who's who that is because he had no idea who milani was it would be really great if Juan Maldacena did this work and I won't say another word this podcast about it
1: Okay. And I I will say only one word because it's my podcast and I can do whatever the hell I want. Uh, I had on Kamran Vafa, as you know, uh, who wrote a book called Puzzles to Unwrap the Universe, in which he cites Juan Maldacena, And I called him on that. I said this was actually original work by P.M. Milani, Eric Weinstein. And it almost doesn't matter. And I find that very frustrating the very same people—and you don't have to respond— Please don't respond. Uh, again, I'm a blowhard on my own podcast. It's one of our prerogatives. We get so little of these things and treats in life. Uh, but um, but I find it very disingenuous of the community. I love Cumron too. But to say that, uh, well, this isn't serious, Eric. You have to cite this paper. You have to put out a paper about GU. You've only done things on Joe Rogan. I find that disingenuous. Um, you don't have to respond. Uh, let's go on.
2: What I will say is this, Um, when you have gatekeepers in the form of advisors, if you have job market meetings where people wield incredible power and they hold other people's careers in the palm of their hand, uh, if you use these places to crush people, you have no right to comment after the fact as to why are these people behaving bizarrely and strangely. Because in essence, whether you submit things to journals and have a perfectly reasonable relationship with peer review, or whether you find that peer review is basically a tool to exclude you and your insights and your claims from the world, depends in large measure on who you are, where you're coming from. It's it's, it's human dependent. It's not independent of who submits and how protected they are. And um, you know the thing that I wanna get across is that uh, the community is producing trauma in people and then claiming that it's paranoia. And you have to recognize that trauma and paranoia look exactly the same uh, when you can't see what the source of it is. If you want to understand what happened to this theory, read uh, The Physics of Wall Street by James Weatherall, Chapter 10 in the epilogue. It's rather clear about the fact that uh, four gentlemen and one lady tried to steal a trillion dollars over 10 years uh, by... Um, pretending to fix the CPI because uh, Social Security and tax brackets were indexed. And they came up with 1.1 percent adjustment that would be needed. And then they broke into two teams to find exactly out uh, the 1.1 percent that they wanted. This was admitted to by Robert Gordon. And uh, the most brilliant uh, thesis that probably came through Harvard in terms of mathematical economics was destroyed So that Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Bob Packwood uh, could have a back-end run around the third rail of politics, which is slashing benefits and raising taxes, using economists to destroy, uh, uh, funnily enough, a bright, promising woman of color from the developing world uh, in an an essentially all-male field. And uh, these people should pay with their reputation.
1: All right, let's look at uh, one last video here. Let me, yeah. Imagine that that
2: torus that you see in the lower left corner of the screen, Mm -hmm. okay? Yep. Is a two dimensional model, toy model of space time. So going around through the center is like Groundhog Day. You come back to the same place and it's a repeating time cycle. And space is simply a circle. Now, in such a world, we would normally think of quantum field theory or gravity as taking place on that object, and you'd have fields, you'd have effectively functions called sections on that object, and what you're seeing here is something that's very hard to picture because it's five-dimensional, but one, one trick here is because the torus has a property called parallelizability The object on the right is a um, depiction of a metric. Each point that isn't on one of those two sheets is a potential metric at any given point on the torus. So in other words, if a metric is a symmetric non-degenerate two-tensor, if you think of it as a matrix, it would be of the form... X, Z, Z, Y, and the non-degenerate means that X, Y minus Z squared is not equal to zero. So that's what's cutting out that variety, if you will. The zeros of the de- of the determinant uh, would be points, given that there are three degrees of freedom in the metric. And so instead of actually having a metric uh, space-time, GU would say replace the torus by the entire space in that sort of hourglassy region. So the top region would be like space-space metrics. Mm -hmm. The bottom region below that sort of weird uh, diaphanous scarf is time-time metrics. And the weird middle region, um, which is sort of uh, around that singularity, would be space-time metrics every way you can stick that donut into that middle region without touching one of those two sheets is a valid space-time metric. And what GU would do is to say, don't only dance on the points of the two-dimensional torus. Again, the surface is two-dimensional even though it seems to be three-dimensional to naive uh, investigation you should actually have fields that are dancing on all of the points of the torus and simultaneously all of the points in that middle region Mm. of what we call the Diablo diagram. So every point in that region is in play. And if you map, imagine that the stuff in that weird um, hourglassy region on the far right was like very warm and on the far left was very cold. Then if you map the torus, into the far left region, it would be it would show up as being cold. If you mapped it into the far right region, you'd, you'd see it as being very hot. So every way of mapping the torus in pulls back different information from that hourglassy region. And that is in large measure, in part, uh, one of the things that may be going on with the illusion of many worlds, is, is that what you're seeing is, is that the metric may be capable of pulling back data that is dancing on the space of all metrics as well as the space of all points on the original manifold X. So in this case, you've got two, two degrees of freedom on the torus, you've got three degrees of freedom around the hourglass, and two plus three equals five. Now notice that thing up in the top left, which is a ruler protractor combination that I just uh, gave a copy to, to Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Those two sliders are recalibrations of what it means to be one unit. And that protractor is a recalibration of what you're going to define to be 90 degrees. So every way of keeping that bottom arm in a single uh, horizontal position, moving the top arm and moving the two sliders, that's that's three degrees of freedom in the space of metrics. So that's a different depiction of the space of metrics. So the, the big take home from the restrictive version of GU that we're exploring here is that if you allow fields to dance on the space of metric apparatus, measurement apparatus, then kind of the paradoxes of measurement start to make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. You could also potentially try to keep the metric classical because we have two spaces. We have a space downstairs X, which is just the torus, and we have a space upstairs, which is the torus, in this case, cross the hourglass region as long as it doesn't touch the two sheets. Mm. So you've got a five-dimensional manifold hovering over a two-dimensional manifold, and fields on the five-dimensional manifold will be perceived on the two-dimensional manifold when you pull them back via a particular Einsteinian space-time as fields on the tangent bundle of what you will call space-time, together with fields on the normal bundle inside of the five-dimensions. So The normal bundle of a two-dimensional manifold in a five-dimensional space is three-dimensional. So you're gonna see fields that look like, let's say spinners on two dimensions, tensor spinners on three dimensions. If you were in four dimensions, make that torus in your mind represent a four-dimensional space-time, then that Diablo Diablo region would be a 10-dimensional region of metrics, right? Because uh, four by four matrices that are symmetric have 4 squared plus 4 divided by 2 used for different degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. In other words, you get a 10-dimensional normal bundle. Now, you'll notice that if you have ordinary spinners on 14-dimensional space and you pull them back via a metric, which is a mapping of 4 into 14, it looks like spinners on the 4-dimensional space tensors spinners on the 10-dimensional normal bundle. If the normal bundle inherits the Frobenius metric from X13, and you glue in the trace piece in the right way, you either well, if you grew it, glue it in the wrong way, you'd get a 7.3 metric on the normal bundle. But if you glue it in the right way, you'd get a 6-4 metric on the normal bundle. And 6-4, spin 6,4 is a sort of nasty non-compact group. So you might want to break to its maximal compact subgroup like uh, Witten and uh, Barnatan discuss. And the interesting thing about spin 6 promise spin 4 is that it has different names. By low dimensional isomorphism, spin 6 is the same thing as SU4. And spin 4 is the same thing as SU2 cross SU2. And spin 4... And SU4 cross SU2 cross SU2 is the Petit Salam theory.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you can argue that ordinary spinners on the induced metric in 14 dimensions, glued in the right way, pull back as Petit Salam. And I don't know if anyone's ever discussed the connection between Einstein and Petit
1: and Salam. No. No, well, no, I, I can't say no. I don't know. About. I don't know. Um, that's what I'm saying people have brought it up but yes have it has it ever? Has been? It, I don't know
2: mm-hmm.
1: I don't know yeah but so the
2: point is is that spinners on 14 look like spinners on four tensor spinners on some version of 10 yeah and whether you're talking about spin 10 models su5 models or su4 cross su2 cross su 2 which is spin 6 cross spin 4 isn't that exactly what we see in the standard model mm-hmm so Frank Wilczek, let me just uh, see if I can find this beautiful quote from him because he he definitely um, brought this up, and what I recently did when I had him on my podcast, which we haven't released. So if we go over to my screen share,
1: yeah, uh, give me one second. Let me do this. Here we go. And so there we go. Yep. Let me read it.
2: A particularly intriguing feature of SO10, which is really spin 10, or could be spin 6 comma spin 4, is its spinner representation used to house the quarks and leptons in which the states have a simple representation in terms of basis states labeled by a set of plus and minus signs. Perhaps this suggests composite structure. Now here's the sentence that just floored me. Alternatively, one could wonder whether the occurrence of spinners both in internal space and in space-time is more than a coincidence. And then he pulls back immediately. These are just intriguing facts. They are not presently incorporated in any compelling theoretical framework as far as I know. Hmm. Geometric unity is that
1: compelling framework. (laughs) Awesome. Very interesting.
2: Look, let's be honest. I said I was going to uh, release a document, and... um, Clearly we haven't. Uh, not before. okay, April Fools. April Fools. <laughs> uh oh. Um, the big reveal. Go to go to geometricunity.org. Geometric and uh, Yeah, and call that up. And then Brian, why don't you be the first to put your email address in to request uh, a copy? I wouldn't call it a paper, I'd call it a draft. And one of the things I'm looking to do is I'm looking to get constructive feedback from people who want to help me succeed as opposed to people who just want to be dicks and take me down. Um, because that's just, to be honest, not very interesting to me, and I've, I've had a little taste of that, and I'm not that interested. Uh, what I would love is to bring your positive energy, download it, read it, recognize that um, more or less I've been cobbling this together from a million and one different scraps, and that my ability to talk in this way has been degrading for years because I have no one to talk to. I'm not in a department. I'm doing this completely on my own. And I was a little bit frightened to figure out just how much I've forgotten. (laughs) So we're still finding scraps of paper and files on old disks and things like that. I hope that the notation is getting more and more standard, that there are fewer errors, but there's clearly... you know, this is basically me going back to 1983, 84 um, and all the time in between where mostly I didn't talk about this with anybody. And this has been really um, terrifying because, you know, I'm not a physicist. I don't come from this this community. I revere the community. I don't think the community has been behaving well recently. I don't love saying that. Um, but I think that the community community is in a desperate situation, and uh, let's find out whether I have anything to say, or I'm just blowing hot air. Um, I'm not afraid of that, but you know what would really be meaningful to me is for people to bring kindness, benefit of the doubt, hope, and recognition that it's pretty tough to try to do all this on your own, (laughs) and um, uh, be constructive, and take a look, and um, I think there are two two email addresses on the paper uh, in draft form, um, one for technical feedback and one for general feedback. Yeah. So uh, I hope that that there's a lot of food for thought. And I do think that, let me just close this out. I think it's a coherent story. I think it's the first time I've ever heard a coherent story about how a very simple beginning would produce something that would look like our world. There are things that I would call predictions in it that uh, talk about what internal quantum numbers you would expect to find likely next in terms of uh, there's much more matter. There's, There's matter that should be dark. There's matter that might be luminous but not at the right energy level yet. You would have to, in order to compute with it, be able to figure out what fields have acquired VEVs and where we are in anthropic spaces in some places. Um, but the internal coherence is much sharper than a few you know there's still some things that i'm trying to locate uh my favorite version of one is the sheab operator i know how to produce sheab operators in general but i had a sheet of paper with um do you remember like paper with feeds with holes on either side
1: oh yeah loose leaf yeah. oh feed oh, no, printer no, no paper. not loose leaf. Printer paper. printer paper printer paper dot matrix yeah so i
2: I did uh, some calculations in representation theory that came up with the projections that I used to use that I'm looking for, and the thing that I remember is that they've got the yellow highlighter and um, these perforated holes on either side it. I I haven't been able to find it yet. So (laughs) it's it's a very long process taking about 37 years of speculation, sometimes more active than others, Uh, and try to put it in one document. So um, I would really appreciate it if people wanted to take uh, a gander through it, try to see some of the ideas and recognize that if we are going to get off this planet with its hydrogen bombs and crazy leaders and diversify and take some, some bets, rockets are not going to do it. There is no real Mars or bust or Occupy Mars strategy. Uh, there's one quote that keeps coming back to me. Our home is in the stars or not at all. If we're going to sit here on a hot-crowded planet with thermonuclear weapons, we maybe we have hundreds of years, but we don't have thousands. And if we're going to get off this planet and go someplace interesting, um, we're, we're going to have to recognize that we don't have the source code yet in Einstein, and it's very limiting, and we're going to have to actually say, what is the source code? And if it turns out that we can find it, we're going to have to be good stewards, and we're not going to do the same thing that we've been doing by handing the stuff over to leaders who don't take seriously the burdens of um, godlike powers that we, the technical people, bestowed. So, Brian, thanks for having me
1: on. And it's and a pleasure to interact with your audience, Eric. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. As always, you're welcome back anytime. Mm-hmm. I do love the fact that you made this promise uh, mm-hmm. back in uh, back in early or late December of two thousand and and twenty that year that may it soon be forgotten Big in some sense.
2: That always gonna try. <laughs> so I was going to try
1: <laughs> that's right well you succeeded you succeeded for sure Eric uh, I want to thank you for your generosity of time and spirit and advice that you've given to me I hope I can help to serve you in this wherever this project may take you it's now out of your hands it's into the world and it's going to hopefully sprout many many delightful new discoveries uh, for the benefit of all mankind as our friend Alfred Nobel so warmly engendered upon the world Eric Best of luck, congratulations, Uh, we'll do a part three next year on this date, on this auspicious date, and let it forever be known as a day of famine, not infamy, for years to come in physics, if we can follow the lead of the generous, the mercurial, the genie Eric Weinstein. Thank you so much, Eric.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hello, I'm Stuart Volco, producer of Into the Impossible. If you enjoyed this episode with Professor Brian Keating, please let us know by subscribing, commenting, sharing, and most importantly, rating and leaving reviews. It really helps keep our universe expanding. We appreciate hearing from you and read every review and comment. We're always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating, And join our premieres every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for live chats. Follow Brian on Twitter, Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's Dr. Brian Keating. For free access to exclusive content, please visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at BrianKeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Viri, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Pastor Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Volco and Brian Keating. For more information on the Arthur C. Clarke Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu.